reports have come out for many, many months now that people on the Trump campaign transition team were surveillanced. Countless Americans would be alive today and countless loved ones would not be grieving today if these policies of sanctuary cities were ended. Washington was a lot more broken than President Trump thought that it was. We'll end up with a truly great health care bill in the future after this mess known as Obamacare explodes. It's time to make America great again. Join the movement. The Neil A. Caruso Show Podcast. Time to dream big. Informative, insightful, and valiant leadership. Telling it the way it is to make a difference. All right, first week, Monday, March 27th, 2017. Great to be back on the program. We were off on Friday, uh, off on Sunday as well for the Neil A. Caruso Show, but we are back now and better than ever, all to make America great again. And, uh, well, we have a very, very busy and probably be a long podcast today because there's just so much news to get to. And, frankly, uh, you need to listen to this in its entirety at some point um, because we're going to – well, we're going to lay out the headlines. We'll talk about healthcare to start with. Um, but we just have uh, so much to get to here between healthcare, between the establishment, uh, and Trump cutting some bureaucracy today. Uh, sanctuary cities, uh, Senator, or I always say Senator Jeff Sessions because it rolls off the tongue better. But Attorney General uh, Jeff Sessions um, today with uh, with a new uh, order in terms of sanctuary cities. We'll get into that. Plus, um, you know. I, I put a Facebook post out there. This is going to be later on because we do have a, a big interview today as well um, to talk about health care and the American Health Care Act that is a goner. Uh, we'll get into that with Dr. Robert Grayboys at the Mercatus Center at George Mason University. And then later on, I'm planning on doing a, a third segment after the interview because I did a, a Facebook post about this yesterday because I just had to comment on uh, in terms of – I saw a CBS News report that was so edited – to make conservatives make Trump look bad, make uh, conservative uh, opinion host Sean Hannity look bad, and um, well, we're going to get into that as well. And yeah, you know, I have some examples here of uh, just egregious bias. Um, Scott Pelley even given an award for his anti-Trump commentary, uh, and then you know just everybody blaming Trump for all of their problems instead of just taking their own uh, responsibility. So uh, we have a lot to get to. Let's get on to healthcare. The American Healthcare Act, I said it from the beginning, a bad bill. Um, it was. It, it frankly was um, not constructed properly. It did not have consensus between uh, the Republican Party and the different facets of the Republican Party. And I, I'm going to get into that in a second as well in terms of the diversity in the Republican Party. But put that aside for a second. Um, you have this... American Health Care Act that was put forth that did not have consensus among Republicans and was a bad bill. Now it's time to start over. Um, the story today is Paul Ryan is going to reverse course 
and is going to continue on healthcare. Well, I expect him to continue on healthcare. You know, I'm watching the Sunday shows yesterday, and usually I don't even get to watch. And lately, I haven't been able to watch it because we have uh, the Neely Cruiser show on Sundays, and this was our uh, first week off. Although I, I was working, so don't don't worry. I'm uh, I'm always working. Somebody tweeted at me today. Why well, you can't take a day off? Trump's not taking any days off. Don't worry, I'm not not taking any days off. Believe me. Um, so the we didn't have the show on Sunday, so I did watch some of the Sunday shows in the commentary. And I'm hearing, you know, politicians and some of the um, panelists saying, well, um, you know, now uh, you have to move away from health care and, um, and you have to do tax reform, which Trump's going to do. Health care would have made tax reform easier because there are a lot of taxes that, like the Cadillac tax that goes into effect in 2020 and some other taxes that are just killing the middle class. And, you know, you're seeing as tax season now, so you're seeing that, uh, how much money is being taken out of your wallets based on this Obamacare. Now, uh, you know, why why would this have to be revisited, okay? Um, it, it should always be—I uh, mean, they screwed up in the beginning, get that straight. But it's not a, we're going to now reverse course— as I believe ABC News reported on, that Paul Ryan's reversing course. It's not a reversing course. Now you have to start over on health care. And, you know, after seven years of running on repeal and replace, you better fulfill your promise. Or 2018 is going to be a bloodbath for Republicans. Now, let me make this clear. The responsibility does not fall on Donald Trump. Donald Trump took it upon himself to negotiate this bill. He endorsed it and negotiated it. It wasn't perfect. And he was trying to get the Freedom Caucus on his side. He was trying to get the different, the moderates on his side. And the goal was a three-pronged approach to ultimately repeal and replace Obamacare or something a little better. But frankly, I think it would still add, it wasn't a good bill, and I've said it. And we're going to get into that with Dr. Gray Boys on the program. But this all comes down to draining the swamp and the establishment and Paul Ryan getting in the way of President Trump's agenda. He found out who his friends are. That is second because I want you to hear what President Trump had to say shortly after the bill was pulled from the House. President Trump reportedly told Paul Ryan, enough, pull it. It's not gonna, If it's not going to pass, take it out. Um, this is what President Trump said in the Oval Office on Friday after this bill was pulled out. Now, when they all become civilized and get together, and try and work out a great health care bill for the people of this country, we're open to it. We're totally open to it. I want to thank the Republican Party. Uh, I want to thank Paul Ryan. He worked very, very hard. I will tell you that. He worked very, very hard. Uh, Tom Price and Mike Pence, who's right here, our Vice President, our great Vice President. Uh, everybody worked hard. I worked as a team player and would have loved to have seen it pass, but again, I think you know I was very clear because I think there wasn't a speech I made or very few where I didn't mention that perhaps the best thing that could happen is exactly what happened today because we'll end up with a truly great health care bill in the future after this mess known as Obamacare explodes. So I want to thank everybody for being here. Uh, it will go very smoothly, I really believe. I think this is something that certainly was an interesting period of time. We all learned a lot. 
We learned a lot about loyalty. We learned a lot about uh, the vote-getting process. We learned a lot about some very arcane rules in, obviously, both the Senate and in the House. Uh, so it's been, certainly for me, it's been a very interesting experience. But in the end, I think it's going to be an experience that leads to an even better health care plan. So thank you all very much, and I'll see you soon. Thank you. We learned a lot, says President Trump, about loyalty, about the political machinations that we've been talking about in the nation's capital. You know, he thanked Paul Ryan. I don't know. I think it's opposites because he's not going to attack him flat out because um, they don't – I guess he does need Paul Ryan. And a lot of people are calling for him to step down as speaker. The problem is Paul Ryan was never with President Trump in the beginning, and he flies with the wind. Um, you know, he was uh, – any time a alleged, you know, media scandal came out, that you know portrayed Trump in a in a poor light. Paul Ryan was quick to say, "Well, that's it. I can't support him." There was a leaked audio recently that he can't support, um, saying that you know I'm not going to support the nominee. Um, and then he doesn't campaign with President Trump in Wisconsin. He canceled on him, in fact. So here's the deal, okay? Because then you have you know Chuck Schumer say, "I'm watching an interview with him on a, on on the local ABC station." Uh, in New York, and he goes, um, this is Schumer saying that, uh, you know, he is, he'll work with Ryan, but Trump is, uh, if Trump wants to just keep opposing the establishment, and there you go. That's what it is. They're afraid of their jobs. They, they would rather bound together. See, this is all bullcrap. They, the Democrats and Republicans, will come together. But they're going to come together to oppose an outsider who threatens their um, their career and their corrupt ways and the large bureaucracy that exists in Washington that allows them to have control over policy and over the American people. Now, let's get this straight. Their health care is not affected by the Obamacare, by the American Health Care Act. So their sense of urgency is lacking because after seven years, seven damn years, they should have had a consensus plan. They should have come together as all facets of this party. So you have the Freedom Caucus, the conservative wing of the Republican Party. You have the moderates, which is what they keep calling the Tuesday group this week. Okay? There's more diversity in the Republican Party for good or for or for bad, because well, the liberals, the Democrats, they stick together on everything, and so as much as you may just despise what their policies are, you have to give them credit that they always stick together no matter what. Um, and the Republicans, they are very. Um, I'm going to use the word diverse, but they're divided in in some ways. Um, but there are, listen, if you're just, as a party, say, well, we have to vote this way, you know, the Democrats are going to oppose Neil Gorsuch, we're just going to, um, we're just going to have this stance, and this is just, goes for everybody, and you have to vote this way. That's frankly groupthink, and it doesn't allow for free thinking, so that's not good. Uh, President Trump is tweeting on this uh, Monday night. He says that the Democrats will make a deal with me on health care. As soon as Obamacare folds, not long. Don't worry, we are in very good shape. He also criticized the House Freedom Caucus uh, on Friday, and he criticized them t 
tonight saying the Republican House Freedom Caucus was able to snatch defeat from the jaws of victory. After so many bad years, they were ready for a win. And Trump is right. And, you know, it's funny because every time Trump says something and the meeting flips out because he's tweeting, um, he turns out to be right every time. Give me an example of where he's been wrong. You can't. I can argue that he's right and will turn out to be right, and we'll get into the intelligence and the surveillance later on because I'm going to have a big story on NeilAcurso.com this week about all the connections. You're going to connect the dots, and you can check that out. probably be out tomorrow. You can sign up for my newsletter, in fact, and you'll get it straight to your inbox when it is posted. Um, so this all has to go – this all goes back the establishment versus the outsider. It goes back to the fact that the establishment wants to maintain this control and President Trump opposes the status quo. This was a win for the status quo as Mick Mulvaney, the Office of Management and Budget uh, Director, said on Sunday's Meet the Press. Um, and I'll let you hear what... Because, uh, frankly, he's absolutely correct and it leads us into the bureaucracy um, as President Trump seeks to to cut more bureaucracy out of Washington. But here is uh, OMB Director Mick Mulvaney on what he calls a broken Washington, D.C. Figure out what happened. I think what, what happened is that Washington won. I think the one thing we learned this week is that Washington was a lot more broken than President Trump thought that it was. So what you have is the status quo wins. And unfortunately, the folks back home lost. You can, you, can, you can blame it on the Freedom Caucus if you want to, but there's also a lot of moderates. Charlie Dent will be on your show in a little bit who are also against the bill. Mm -hmm. um, so it's sort of the powers that be in Washington that won. So the and Republican Party home, has not changed Washington after taking over the House in 10, taking over the Senate in 14, and taking over the White House now. I think, more importantly, we haven't been able to change Washington in the first 65 days. And I think if there's anything that's disappointing and sort of an educational process to the Trump administration was that this place was a lot more rotten than we thought that it was. And thought that I, I thought it was, because I've, I've been here for six years. I know the Freedom Caucus. I helped found it. I never thought it would come to this. Yeah, so it, this is, I think, a blessing in disguise, though. As much as on Friday I was a little frustrated, um, I'll use the word frustrated is how I would describe my feelings on Friday about this, but then as the day went on, I said, you know what? You know, I've been critical of this bill since the beginning. I did want it to pass because, you know, you don't want a failure uh, right out of the gate, you know, within the first hundred days of a presidency. And frankly, this is not Trump's failure. Trump did everything he could to, to negotiate this. I said this on, on Thursday's podcast. The failure is clearly on Paul Ryan and the House. And, you know, you're looking at this and this was a, a bad bill from the get-go. It did not cut prices enough. It did not include enough conservative uh, plans to lower premiums and deductibles. And frankly, Paul Ryan did not reach out to his own party. He put the bill under lock and key in Congress and did not even talk to members of his own party. That is scary. And for a leader, it's wrong. It's just wrong. Uh, so I'm glad that it, that it did get pulled. Start over. I'm listening to Rand Paul today. And Rand Paul said, listen, let's start with what we agree with. And there's a lot of agreement. Cutting out the mandate, for example. Okay? The repeal they agree with is the replacement aspect is where they come 
to disagreement. That's fine. Negotiate that. But what they should do is talk among themselves and say, okay, we disagree on the replacement. We're, none of us are going to get everything that we want. There's going to be some compromise. President Trump could be the chief negotiator and could bring people together and say, okay, you're not going to get everything you want, but let's negotiate on the repeal on the replacement. We know we want to repeal it. We have that down pat. But in terms of replacement, that's where they come to disagreement. But it was a wholesome debate. The problem is that they just uh, they didn't have the votes. They pushed this thing along. Uh, Paul Ryan probably made President Trump believe that he could have gotten the votes, and President Trump expended some. Um, some valuable political capital. So what's next? Well, tax reform. Problem is, healthcare would have cut a lot of taxes, trillions of dollars of taxes, for the middle class. It would have relieved a lot, a lot, from from your wallets. And then tax reform would come a little bit easier after that. It makes it a little bit more difficult, but not impossible. And what you have to know about President Trump is that he does not take defeat. He will build a better plan, he said in that clip we played earlier, that they will have a better plan, and he's going to reach out to Democrats even and say, listen, you know that this bill doesn't work. You know that premiums are rising 116% Arizona last year. You know deductibles are through the roof. You know people who were pushed off their insurance. So let's come together, and let's cut the nonsense and the political games and let's work together. Problem is, they don't want to work with Trump because he's an outsider and he's not establishment and he doesn't fall into the political trappings. And he does, he's not beholden to anyone. He doesn't take anyone's money. He's working for free for you. And frankly, we're lucky to have someone like that. And and if we had term limits and if we had um, uh, no special interests, then we would have all politicians working for us. And I think there are some good politicians. There's a lot of people with good intentions. But at the same time, you know, you have people like Chuck Schumer and Nancy Pelosi. They just talk and talk and talk. And, you know, Nancy Pelosi is so happy that Obamacare is in. It's a win. It's no win, honey. It's a failure. And now it's going to hurt even more than ever. It already is blowing up. And there's one out of three counties without more than one insurance on the market, there's absolutely no choice, there are high costs, and people are suffering. And now they're going to continue to suffer under Obamacare, which is the law of the land, and Democrats own that bill, because they didn't ask for Republican support. So Republicans shouldn't make the same mistake. So let's start all over and get a new bill in place. Tax reform is next. I, I bring up the fact that this is establishment. And... Frankly, President Trump now knows who his friends are in Washington. That is nobody. And unless he gets a dog, like Harry Truman said, he will have no friends in Washington. So, President Trump's on an island. And it's sad. It really is. Because not only does he not have any friends in Washington, he has opposition, resistance from the Democrats. He has his own party that has their own agenda. Paul Ryan seems to have his own agenda. And President Trump is the only one, well, one of few, who really want to drain the swamp, who really want great change from the American people. 
in cleaning up corruption, and you're going to be met with resistance on everything. And you're, it's going to be a battle on tax reform. It's going to be a battle on national security measures. I mean, look at the travel suspension. We'll get to that in a second. I have the stats, by the way, of refugees pouring in. You want to know how many refugees are coming in? Stick around on the podcast. But the bureaucracy needs to be cut. So now President Trump is um, instituting a new White House office, um, which uh, Jared Kushner, President Trump's son-in-law and senior advisor, will head. This is going to fix, quote, government stagnation. Um, a White House official so we can confirm we are making an announcement to establish the White House Office of, of the White House Office of American Innovation and look forward to sharing additional details. So this office will be filled by former business executives and it seeks to bring in new thinking to Washington. Um, Jared Kushner said we should have excellence in government. The government should be run like a great American company. Our hope is that we can achieve success and efficiencies for our customers who are citizens. Trump told uh, the newspaper that the office, uh, Trump told the Washington Post, excuse me, that the office would focus on fixing government stagnation. It would have the authority to overhaul federal bureaucracy and fulfill campaign promises such as reforming health care for veterans and fighting opioid addiction. Um, addiction, excuse me. Kushner uh, would report directly to his father-in-law. Now, Kushner hopes to bring in aggressive, non-ideological views. And I would argue President Trump is highly non-ideological. For all the political gridlock, he's really non-ideologue. Um, and Kushner is seeking to bring in talent from the technology sector. Apple chief executive Tim Cook, Microsoft founder Bill Gates, um, Salesforce Chief Executive Mark Bainoff and uh, Tesla Chief Executive Elon Musk. Uh, some of the tech giants, obviously, you know, have openly criticized Trump's policies. They have been against Trump, Silicon Valley, but they're uh, eager to help the administration with issues. So already you're seeing coming together to trim down government. Because a lot of this problem, a lot of the problems that we face right now are because of very large government. And because government has this massive control, all these government agencies, we're, we're talking about the spying and the surveillance on regular American people. But we're also talking about, um, you know, what are, how are they serving uh, the United States and what can be better done? Um, cutting bureaucracy would make things run more efficiently, more leaner. And President Trump wants to run it like a business, which means get stuff done. Enough with the slow, we're going to resist. Because we're at a pivotal point in our history where we cannot afford to resist. We cannot afford to do nothing in this Congress. And the Trump presidency, with his agenda that was voted for on November 8th, is going to be defined by policy. It's going to be defined by his ability to keep Americans safe, to close the borders, for economic growth. Hopefully we reach 4% GDP at some point. And um, for uh, massive um, jobs to come back to America. And we've already seen it. Uh, in fact, I put a story up over the weekend. Big league jobs um, you're seeing um, over... Oh, what is it? Over a hundred billion? I have to look at it. But um, 
there or a hundred million um, dollars. No, a hundred billion. I was right. Over a hundred billion invested. That's a billion with a B. I even shocked myself there. Um, Investing in the U.S., creating over uh, 1.8 million American jobs, or more announcements came out last weekend. Charter Communications was the last. Now, more regulations. Trump uh, repealed the so-called blacklisting rule today that required federal contractors to disclose labor violations. The Obama-era rule was intended to prevent the government from contracting with businesses responsible for wage theft or workplace safety violations. And any point within the last three years, but business groups feared he gave unions the upper hand at the bargaining table. Uh, Trump also struck down uh, three other regulations aimed at protecting the environment and students, but um, these regulations ended up really hurting businesses and employers um, who uh, it violated, and they claimed they violated their due process rights, forcing them to. Um, or allowing uh, employees to report just mere allegations of misconduct, which could be just made up. Um, and Obama really had a war against companies, and it's time to change that. And so you're seeing those policies put forth. Now, go from health care, you think about what are Trump's policies, health care, uh, tax reform, immigration, and national security. Today... Jeff Sessions, our attorney general, um, met with the media at the press briefing, and he said, sanctuary cities stop now. He says, such policies cannot continue. Here is the attorney general, a uh, four-minute clip about on action against sanctuary cities. And then I'm going to tell you, just in this month alone of March, a number of Incidents that have happened, not widely reported, gangs and others, we'll talk about. But here is Attorney General Jeff Sessions on ending sanctuary cities. The American people are not happy with these results. They know that when cities and states refuse to help enforce immigration laws, our nation is less safe. Failure to deport aliens who are convicted of criminal offenses puts whole communities at risk especially immigrant communities in the very sanctuary jurisdictions that seek to protect the perpetrators. DUIs, assaults, burglaries, drug crimes, gang rapes, crimes against children and murderers. Countless Americans would be alive today and countless loved ones would not be grieving today if these policies of sanctuary cities were ended. Not only do these policies endanger lives of every American, just last May, the Department of Justice Inspector General found that these policies also violate federal law. The President has rightly said disregard, disregard for law must end. In his executive order, he stated that it is the policy of the executive branch to ensure that states and cities comply with all federal laws, including all immigration laws. Today, I'm urging states and local jurisdictions to comply with these federal laws, including 8 U.S.C. Section 1373. Moreover, the Department of Justice will require that jurisdictions seeking or applying for Department of Justice grants to certify 
compliance with 1373 as a condition of receiving those awards. This policy is entirely consistent with the Department of Justice's Office of Justice Programs guidance that was issued just last summer under the previous administration. This guidance requires state and local jurisdictions to comply and certify compliance with Section 1373 in order to be eligible for OJP grants. It also made clear that failure to remedy violations could result in withholding grants, termination of grants, and disbarment or ineligibility for future grants. The Department of Justice will also take all lawful steps to claw back any funds awarded to a ju jurisdiction that willfully violates 1373. In the current fiscal year, Department of Justice's Office of Justice Programs and Community-Oriented Policing Services anticipates awarding more than $4.1 billion in grants. I strongly urge our nation's states and cities and counties to consider carefully the harm they are doing to their citizens by refusing to enforce our immigration laws and to rethink these policies. Such policies make their cities and states less safe. Public safety, as well as national security, are at stake and put them at risk of losing federal dollars. The American people want and deserve a lawful system of immigration that keeps us safe and one that serves the national interest. This ex expectation is reasonable, just, and our government has the duty to meet it, and we will meet it. Thank you. In Montgomery County, Texas, I'm sorry, in Montgomery County, right up the road, there was a race in Maryland, sorry, in, in, uh, at Rockville High School. Has anyone from the Department of Justice had any conversation with anyone in Montgomery County or Rockville as they describe themselves as sanctuary county and city? And there's also a boatload of federal government in Montgomery County. Well, you know, Maryland is talking about a state law to make the state a sanctuary state. Uh, the governor is opposed to that, I'm glad to hear. That would be such a mistake. I would plead with the people of Maryland to understand that this makes the state of Maryland more ri at risk for violence and crime, that it's not good policy. And as a, a former prosecutor for many years in state and federal uh, law on the and jurisdictions, I just know the historic relationship different federal agencies have with regard to honoring detainers. It's just a fundamental principle of law enforcement that if you uh, have a person arrested and another jurisdiction has a charge, then uh, they file a detainer. And when you finish with the prisoner, you turn them over to the next jurisdiction for their uh, uh, adjudication. That is what should be done here. So there you have it, Attorney General Jeff Sessions. And that last question I kept in there because it had to do with the Rockville, Maryland rape that I talked about last week. Two illegal immigrants, 18-year-old and 17-year-old, freshmen in high school. They don't speak English. They're in this high school. They drag a 14-year-old girl from the hallway into the boys' bathroom and rape her. That was just last week. The state has a bill put forth. The governor apparently opposes it, according to uh, Sessions there. Um, they have a bill to make the entire state a sanctuary state, similar to how California basically is. 
that allows, and if you don't know what a sanctuary city is, let me just reiterate, a sanctuary city defies federal immigration law by saying that if you are a illegal immigrant and you come in here, you are granted sanctuary, meaning you will not be deported. The problem is they commit crimes, well, crime just by being here, but if they commit a crime, and there are several this month that we know of that, were, that I compiled, you have, they commit a crime, they are detained, as it should be, and arrested, they are not deported, they are released back into their own community. If other, and we've had a retired immigration agent, Michael Cutler, on this program, we'll get him on again soon, in fact, I'll probably give him a call and try to get him on this week. Um, and he told me uh, right on this very podcast and on my Sunday show that uh, the minorities suffer more, that the fellow illegal immigrants and and um, uh, legal immigrants suffer more from these policies because they're threatened, because if they speak up, and frankly, if you have an illegal immigrant that speaks up about crime by another illegal immigrant, they are told, okay, thank you for, for informing us. You will not be deported. So there's no risk that they would be deported if they speak up because we need them to speak up. We're trying to work with local communities here. But if they speak up, then the illegal immigrants, that the criminal illegal alien that is that is detained, will just be released and will end up retaliating against the person who reported him or her. You have this Rock, Rockville, Maryland rape that happened this past week. If you're a parent and you're sending a 14-year-old to a high school, you should have no expectation that an 18-year-old will be in that classroom. An adult that does not speak English, that by the way had a criminal past and was previously arrested and crossed the border illegally in 2016. In Houston, Texas, Two illegal immigrants from El Salvador were accused of kidnapping, drugging, and raping a teen and tattooing the Green Reaper on her skin. They were waving and smiling to cameras in a courtroom. They also allegedly murdered another team, a teen they kidnapped. In Hempstead, New York, not far from where I am, an admitted gang member sexually assaulted a two-year-old and stabbed a woman this person, this illegal criminal alien, had been deported four times. Deported four times, clearly on immigration officers' radars. They were, he was let back in a fifth time to sexually assault a two-year-old. Unbelievable. And that just happened last week. And then North, uh, in North Carolina, a legal immigrant charged with first-degree murder... He's from Honduras. He beheaded his mother. Beheaded her. And these are tactics of barbarians. They come here. They do not want to assimilate. And they want to kill Americans. What kind of sanctuary city policy provides sanctuary for American citizens? Because they're coming here. And you know what President Trump said when he launched his campaign... In June 2015, that, you know, Mexico is not sending its best people, that some of them, he didn't say all, but he said some of them are murderers. Some of them are rapists. And guess what? He is proven correct once again. So for all the outrage and for, you know, all of the um, 
uh, companies dropping his brands and saying, well, you know, how could he say such a thing? He's right. Wake up. It's a time that we get our heads out of our you-know-what and start realizing what is going on and why President Trump was elected. Because, frankly, a lot of people still don't understand it, and they're still crying, and I have someone I encountered today literally screaming at the at hearing President Trump's voice. He's our president. You need to move on. And the reason... For his presidency has a lot to do with these sanctuary city policies that are dangerous to Americans. When you have admitted gang members, when you have rapists, when you have criminal illegals crossing the border and committing drug crimes and selling heroin to our kids. This is what is going on in our communities. Heroin does not come from America. It comes from Mexico, it comes from outside the United States. It's time to wake up. And it's time to put political correctness aside again. And it's time to restore American safety. And for all those mayors that are not going to support this, like my mayor, Bill de Blasio, I urge you to look at the facts and see what is going on and see who it's hurting. Americans, the people who vote for you, unless you get illegal votes. Um, refugees, by the way, pouring into the U.S. since Trump's travel ban has been delayed. So President Trump issues his travel suspension on seven nations, then reduced to six, took Iraq out on the revision. And more than 8,400 refugees have settled in the U.S. since Trump's uh, executive orders on immigration have been stymied by the federal courts. The first executive order, as you know, focused on uh, troubled nations and bar refugees for 120 days. That was delayed in early February, and the revised order was blocked this past this month. New figures from the State Department confirm that since the initial travel suspension was held up in court, more than 8,000 refugees have settled in the United States. And according to the Refugee Processing Center, a digitized tracking network created by the U.S. Department of State, 8,476 refugees have moved into the United States, of which 1,131 originating from war-torn Syria, where ISIS said they will infiltrate our refugee population, as said under oath by Director of National Intelligence James Clapper, by FBI Director James Comey, and others. The massive influx of refugees from Syria is troubling to law enforcement, clearly, and counterterrorism officials. Earlier this month, the Department of Homeland Security officially announced that over 300 people who entered the U.S. through a refugee program are under investigation for ties to international terrorism. Think about that. We know that they want to infiltrate our refugee population we know that they have. We just had a massive terrorist attack in London in which he pledged allegiance to ISIS and the Islamic State took responsibility for it. And we're just going to, we're gonna, going to allow, and again, it just goes back to establishment politics, political correctness, and the agendas 
by by politicians that are not focused on our country. They're, they're supposed to represent the United States, and instead they allow 8,400 refugees to settle here without knowing who the hell they are and without knowing their intentions. Really sick. And now President Trump wants to build the wall, and uh, according to a report today, uh, the administration wants a billion dollars to fund 62 miles of the promised wall along the U.S.-Mexico border. Um, the budget request would provide for 48, mi- uh, 48 miles of a new wall and would update existing fencing along another 14 miles. Um, we'll see if, uh, if this report is true. I know they've been trying to... Um, they're allowing contractors, including some uh, Hispanic contractors, believe it or not, because they want the same thing as we do. Enough with the identity politics. What do they want? They want security. They want safety. They want a strong economy. They want jobs. And so there are contractors who are uh, proposing um, what they would do in terms of building the wall. And the wall is is part of it. Um, the wall is important because it would slow down the track of people coming in. And hopefully it's unscalable. And the wall, though, is all part of surveillance at the border, a border control, a border protection, and increased border patrol agents. Um, before we uh, get to the uh, interview with Dr. Robert Grayboys on healthcare, and we'll get back to healthcare, and really a, a very substantive and um, a deep policy interview because enough of the process already. Uh, what basically I asked Dr. Ray boys, what can we do now moving forward? What should be in this plan? Forget about the process, how to construct it. And he told me, give you a little teaser here. He said it should not be done in one comprehensive bill because that's why we're in this mess in the first place. It's very true. A couple of other national security things. Trump Tower is receiving two or three bomb threats per week since Trump was sworn in. None of the threats have been credible so far, but um, the NYPD, federal agents, commuters, businesses, residents, all affected. Um, the police department doing an incredible job, and along with Secret Service, where uh, the First Lady is still living with her son, Baron. And uh, they've had to evacuate the facility multiple times. Um, you know, by the way, that travel suspension, 13 states have actually united to support President Trump's travel suspension. Uh, yeah, Texas, along with 12 other states, uh, is leading the charge in support of President Trump's executive order, restricting immigration and refugees that has been delayed in the courts. Uh, Texas Attorney General Ken Paxton filed the paperwork in the U.S. Court of Appeals today. He was not alone. 11 other state attorney generals and a governor uh, pledged to support the president's new travel guidelines. So the states, in, in addition to Texas, Alabama, Arizona, Arkansas, Florida, Kansas, Louisiana, Montana, Oklahoma, South Carolina, South Dakota, and West Virginia all joined Texas in the filing, as well as the governor of Mississippi. Um, The uh, Paxton, the Texas attorney general, said this, Rather than leaving national security in limbo while litigation dragged on, President Trump issued a revised immigration order that addresses the Ninth Circuit concerns and is a vital step in securing our borders. It is imperative that we find a better way to screen refugee applicants to maintain national security. The president is fulfilling a solemn duty to protect Texans and all Americans. So, uh, yeah, 8,400 refugees is flowing in since Trump was elected. People need to be held accountable, folks, because this is not helping us. 
and is leaving us very vulnerable to terrorism. Tell you, they want something that's bigger than 9-11. We need to be proactive. Uh, we'll get back into the healthcare debate when we come back. Dr. Robert Rayboy is in the Mercatus Center at George Mason University uh, joins me to talk about the American Health Care Act that was pulled from the House on Friday and what can be done in new legislation. Plus, then later on, uh, I mentioned Mayor Bill de Blasio in New York City. He's blaming Trump for everything. I, I think he's sleeping as we speak. In fact, because he sleeps in late. So I think he's blaming President Trump for his sleep problems. You know, because President Trump doesn't sleep and works instead. Uh, so we'll get into that, plus um, the media um, trying to make conservatives and President Trump look bad. I have some egregious examples I'm going to go over. I feel like I have to do it. So that's coming up on the Neil A. Crystal Show podcast. Dr. Robert Gray, boys, on healthcare when we return. Informant, insightful, and valiant leadership. Telling it the way it is to make a difference. A ranger station. I'd like to report a bear hug. Okay. I put out my campfire and Smokey Bear hugged me. So you drowned the fire, you stirred it, drowned it again, and felt that it was cold? Uh-huh. Yeah, but he's just letting you know you did good. Bear hug from Smokey Bear. Status update. I'm gonna let you go now. There are many ways to start a fire, but one sure way to put it out. Learn how you can do your part at SmokeyBear.com. Sponsored by the U.S. Forest Service Ad Council and your state forester. Woo! Let's get crazy! In movies, when someone at a party jumps into a pool fully dressed, everyone cheers them on and jumps in too. Just so you know, in real life parties, nobody jumps in after you. You just look stupid. Come on, jump in! Come on! Most party fouls are pretty dumb, but if you decide to drink and drive underage, you could lose your license and your freedom. Learn more at ultimatepartyfoul.org. Brought to you by the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration and the Ad Council. Neil's the real deal, but don't just take our word for it. I'll tell you what, I've gotten to know him really well. He's the real deal. We have somebody who's the real deal working for us, and that's what we need. Neil's the real deal. Telling it the way it is on the Neil A. Caruso Show podcast on iTunes and the Neil A. Caruso Show Sundays at 12 noon Eastern on neilacaruso.com. Now joining us on the Neil A. Crusoe Show podcast, a friend of the program, Dr. Robert Grayboy is a senior research fellow at the Mercatus Center at George Mason University in Arlington, Virginia. He joins us over the phone today. Dr. Grayboys, thanks so much for taking time. Hey, good to talk to you again, Neil. All right, so first, let me just get your uh, opinion. Were you shocked? Were you surprised? I know you did not favor the American Health Care Act that was put forth by the House. So what was your reaction when it uh, was removed by Speaker Paul Ryan from a House vote? Oh, you know, I uh, and I'll always stress that I, I do policy, not politics. Sure. And, and what happened Friday was a uh, good mixture of both. So, no, I, I, I can't say that I was shocked. Look, there is there's... A big lesson in it, which is, unless you have a filibuster-proof Senate, uh, things are very tough to do. Um, and they didn't have that going in. Um, and so what they had was the AHCA, which 
was designed to go through reconciliation and, and uh, get around the fact that there, uh, it had to be done through reconciliation, which severely limited it. Um, and hence, uh, the law, the bill as written was a pretty bad one. It, uh, as we talked about before, I didn't think it was going to improve things. I thought it was probably going to worsen things. So now it is gone, and it's probably, you know, again, from a policy standpoint, just as well that it's gone. Right, and I would tend to agree with you. I mean, listen, uh, folks know on this program I was not uh, in favor of this bill. I didn't think it was conservative enough. I don't think it really cut uh, through the core of Obamacare. So now we're stuck with uh, the Affordable Care Act or uh, Obamacare. Um, that's going to remain in place, and President Trump was quick to say, well, you know, politically this is now on Democrats, and this is going to explode. It already is exploding. We know one in three counties are uh, only have one insurance in the marketplace, and that may get worse. Um, before I get to what President Trump can do to improve the Affordable Health Care Act, although I doubt that he'd do it because politically that would be damaging to improve something that's already a mess – um, but on the policy standpoint, um, what will Obamacare now do this year and in 2018? <clears throat> well, I, look, I've been watching this thing since before it existed, uh, and I can't say that I've been surprised by very much of anything uh, that's happened with it. So we still have insurers fleeing the market. We have premiums rising. Uh, we have expansion of coverage that didn't go as far as some thought it would, and in fact, we will see whether it actually begins reversing. Uh, not predicting that, but it's a possibility that it sort of parts of it have run its course. Uh, it has narrowed networks. It has uh, at least a substantial group. Well, while some people have coverage they didn't have before, a substantial group. <clears throat> have worse coverage than they had before, and they're paying more for it. But as as we talked about last time, it was always a redistributive law, and so was the AHC, which just went away on Friday. Um, in the case of Obamacare, it uh, it, it really uh, taxed the middle class and for the benefit of lower-income people, and as we discussed last time, the AHCA would have somewhat reversed that course, but it was still all redistrib redistributed. Some people were going to be winners. Some people were going to be losers. And that's still where we are. Uh, I, the, the big question for the Affordable Care Act is whether things just absolutely fall to pieces or whether they reach some sort of a, a stasis and swirl around. Right. And, you know, Dr. Great Boys, I mean, uh, from a process standpoint, the rollout wasn't smooth. It wasn't communicated well. But then once the rollout was put forth, you had the White House a couple of days later that had to better communicate that they had a three-pronged approach to this. If this American Health Care Act did pass, which, you know, would, um, again, like we said, the the first um, the first prong in, in this three-pronged approach would really not um, – would not benefit all Americans and really wasn't the best plan. But if all three phases were put forth, um, I don't even know if we'd get to phase two or three because those could have been blocked. Um, but if we got two and three in, would that have any um, substantial benefit or would you keep any parts of it when drawing up a new plan? 
Well, I still wasn't expecting a great deal of it. Again, just the fundamentally the um, uh, Friday's vote, which was on you know, what was considered to be phase one, was not going to fix very much, and it was probably going to worsen some things. Uh, phase two was the um, the Secretary of um, Health and Human Services would change some regulations, which uh, mm-hmm. Dr. Price is still welcome to do. Uh, and an awful lot of the ACA was uh, sort of propped up or, let's say, duct-taped together uh, by uh, by fiat from HHS. Things can still happen from there. What? I'm not sure. We'll see. And the third part was sort of a post-it note that once we get past phase two, we'll pass some more laws somewhere and, and do some stuff. But what they were going to be, I don't know. Um, and we will never know now. So Dr. Robert Grayboy is a senior research fellow at the Mercatus Center at George Mason University. Um, I was actually reading a little bit today. 538 put out an article about um, about what Tom Price, the Secretary of Health and Human Services, could do. So this is what they write, and I'll get your reaction to it. So now that Obamacare, as Paul Ryan said, is the law of the land until they repeal it, which to me it's unbelievable that after seven and a half years, just my personal opinion, I'm not asking your opinion, seven and a half years, they should have had a plan to repeal this and a consensus plan of that. Get into what the Freedom Caucus wanted out of this bill in a second, but since Obamacare is the law of the land, what HHS could do, which is uh, according to 538 writes this, that they could change requirements for Health insurance coverage, uh, plans sold on the insurance marketplaces are required to cover a list of 10 services. Those are the essential health benefits, um, which include mental health, pregnancy care, and prescription ju- uh, drugs. HHS um, was left to define what those categories are. So they, while they have to provide women's health care, they don't necessarily have to prov- uh, provide contraception for all women free of copays. They could do some minor things like that. Um, the Obama administration largely left uh, states to decide what those essential benefits would be, but Price can make those decisions at the federal level, uh, which would require insurers uh, to cover fewer services. Another thing that Price could do, actually two other things, he could drop a ongoing court case that uh, left over from the Obama admin uh, move that would cut some subsidies to cover more than half of the marketplace enrollees and he can loosen um, the mandate requiring people to have uh, coverage or pay a penalty uh, in their taxes. If he did all of that, would that, I mean, it's not going to help. This is still a disastrous law, but um, would it ease the burden on the American people? Yeah. Uh, so I wrote about uh, essential health benefits back, I think, in 2011. I, I named the article The Secretary's Joystick, by which I meant it was right. like a video game that uh, the secretary could drive prices up and drive prices down. And basically it was a, it's, it's a highly discretionary chunk of the law. So the law says that there are these 10 buckets of stuff that every insurance plan has to cover. Uh, beyond that, it's the, the secretary determines exactly what those buckets are. Um, I'm I'm, I, I will sort of fancifully go to the extreme. I'm not sure if if the secretary could simply say um, they have to have a set of 10 brochures to hand out, and that would, uh, at that point, satisfy it. Uh, but let's just say that the secretary has an enormous discretion in what goes in it and what goes out. 
That said, I'm not sure that it makes a huge amount of difference uh, for a couple of reasons. First of all, essential health benefits. It was a great bit of branding. It sounds like you're an awful person if you say, "Why well, I would I would like to get rid of essential health benefits." Well, yeah. it kind of makes you sound like a monster. But but when you actually look at it, um, EHB only applied to a small chunk of the American public. So if you were buying an individual plan or if you were buying a small business plan, then you were subject to the essential health benefits requirements. If you were, if you had a large employer plan or some of the public plans, whatever, apparently it wasn't all that essential because it doesn't apply there. <clears throat> so we're only talking about uh, the plans for a small segment of Americans. And, you know, and, and again, we... We don't even know what the benefits are, and if Secretary Price decided he was going to drop them down, the next secretary could raise them back. Mm -hmm. uh, so this is something permanent. that is it's well, it's never settled. It's never going to be settled. It is it is a fluid requirement that's subject to the whim of uh, you know of basically of an unelected official, you know, presumably with some nod of the head from. Uh, from the White House, but who knows? I don't know how deeply involved um, either the last White House or this White House would be in this. So I don't actually see it as as a big deal, not to mention which, quite frankly, a lot of the things that are listed as essential health benefits, any any credible plan is going to include most of the stuff anyway. So I don't know that it would make that big a difference. Okay, I Doug. Think it, Nibbling around the edges. Right, right. Dr. Gray Boys, um, let me talk to you about what the Freedom Caucus wanted because um, a lot of people are, are blaming them as a result of why the American Health Care Act was not put forth, that there were more moderates and the more conservative group being the Freedom Caucus. Um, they wanted several things that, that President Trump was negotiating with them on, um, and it seemed like they wouldn't take you know yes for a yes, but uh, obviously they had deep, valid concerns that we've been talking about. Um, number one, they did not want a healthcare system that would be a, a one-size-fit-all mandate that would just what Rand Paul called Obamacare light, that it's basically the same thing just wrapped up in a Republican name. So that's number one. Number two, they did want the essential health benefits re uh, removed and said, listen, if you want to get something on the free market, you could get it, um, you know, but, you know, men, for example, shouldn't be required for a single male be required to have, uh, you know, maternity care on there. Um, they wanted to also... Another big facet of this, I might get your opinion, was removing the pre-existing conditions, um, the guaranteed um, issue and the community rating. Um, I've talked about the pre-existing conditions. I mean, it's like getting flood insurance when your house is being flooded at that time. Um, but is it more complicated than that? I mean, would pre-existing conditions, you remove that, would that drastically reduce premiums but still you know, cover people who want insurance to be insure not necessarily getting it because they're already sick yeah I mean, the problem is that <clears throat> we have for decades been combining the insurance function with sort of social benefit um, transfers uh, so yes it, you know someone who has a pre-existing condition a chronic condition that's very expensive is deserving of sympathy and one can uh, make a very good argument from any end of the political spectrum that there ought to be some means to deal with it. Um, the ACA chose to deal with it by saying 
if you're an insurer, you must sell to anyone who walks through the door regardless, and you'll get paid as if the person were healthy. Um, that's a recipe for disaster. It mm-hmm. is a recipe for uh, for insurers to do everything they can to discourage such such people walking through the door. But the, um, the yeah, there are certainly potentially financial mechanisms that would make it worthwhile for uh, an insurer to take on someone who is sick as long as they're compensated for it. Now, as you said, you you can't persuade an insurer to sell fire insurance or flood insurance after the disaster is already underway. Um, but there, there are certainly ways that, <clears throat> if you wanted, the government could top off, you know, say, find the insurer gets what it actually costs to to service someone with a chronic condition. On the other hand, we don't want the person with a chronic condition to actually have to pay that much. So you can do some sort of a voucher. You can do uh, subsidies of a, a variety in a variety of ways. You can uh, you can set up a system so that it does. You don't have people uh, flitting in and out of insured status as often. You know, that that's one of the huge negatives that came from the fact that for the last 70 years, we've assumed that most people ought to get their insurance through their employers. Um, so this, I edited and wrote part of a book last year, uh, last year or 2015, I can't even remember when, called The Pre-Existing Condition that Mercatus put out. And we uh, we discussed a number of different approaches to deal dealing with people with serious medical conditions. There are lots of ways. Uh, the ACA didn't choose a very good one. Uh, the AHCA didn't choose a very good one. Uh, uh, you know whether whether the Freedom Caucus would have come up with something better. That's you, know, you can. You know, again, we're never going to know what what might have happened. Right. Um, but. Uh, the uh, the approach has been pretty much from all segments of the of the political spectrum to point to somebody, be it insurers or whomever, and say, "Well, we, there's a problem, so we're telling you, you gotta, you're the one who has to pay for it." Um, so we haven't done it very efficiently, and uh, you know we wouldn't have Friday if it had passed either. Dr. Robert Grayboy, Senior Research Fellow at the Mercatus Center at George Mason University. Uh, let's look forward because obviously we cannot change the past, uh, whether people wanted to or, or not. Um, the future of this, um, some are saying, like the Freedom Caucus, Jim Jordan was on uh, Fox News Sunday saying that it would be uh, possibly better to just have a clean repeal. Uh, repeal it and then replace it later. The problem is there um, – you're taking away subsidies that people are relying on to ease them off of the Obamacare. Uh, there won't be any expanded Medicaid that under the American Health Care Act would have been um, gone in 2020. So there would have been some time for that. Um, millions would be left off. And, you know, if you just repeal this cleanly, um, you're setting up for, uh, for a disaster in terms of um, uh, not just politics, but also, you know, these people that did the, the few that were benefited from Obamacare would be um, damaged from it. So President Trump has said, let's repeal and replace simultaneously. It sounds great. Let me ask you, because to me, I love looking at the ideal, and I think we can strive for the best, but is it even possible to do a repeal and a replace at the same time? Well, 
again, and alluded to that earlier, uh, there was no such thing as a clean repeal. You could you could have something you know, the best one can do, but again, unless you had 60 votes in the Senate, right? Uh, you weren't going to repeal the whole thing. You were going to repeal chunks of it. Uh, it's kind of like I don't I don't like bungee jumping, so we'll repeal the bungee cord, and later on we'll repeal the part where you jump off the bridge. Uh, and that's I'm afraid what it was going to end up being like. Um, so if you if you didn't have to deal with a filibuster. Yeah, you could you could repeal it. It would it still wouldn't be completely clean because you would not be going back to the status quo ante of 2010 because a lot of things, a lot of things, uh, institutions that were in place at that time are gone. And if you just simply repeal the ACA whole in its entirety. Uh, you would still find some pretty nasty gaps because things you relied on seven years ago just aren't there anymore. Um, so it, it was going to be a hard slog no matter what. Uh, now going going forward, I think they really need to. It's, it's sort of a two-part exercise. One, which is taking the list of conservative usual ideas, <clears throat> which I've kind of been hammering for years. Uh, hammering at uh, the things that conservatives talk about when they talk about health care reform uh, tend to be things that kind of sound free markety but really kind of dissolve when you look look closer at them uh, and then then they're going to have to look at some things that really haven't been on either agenda uh, the agenda of either party and uh, and while it's uh, dark days of heavy-duty partisanship now. There are a number of things that can be done down the road uh, that I don't think would be nearly as partisan. Again, that's bordering on the political end, mm-hmm. but uh, but there are things where you can get some bipartisan consensus and actually get things through both houses. Like presumably. what? Um, eventually, we're going to have to deal with Medicare. Right now, yes. it's the third rail, and people don't want to, uh, want to but ultimately... It's a couple decades from breaking the federal government's uh, finances. Uh, the reimbursement system misallocates resources in many, many ways. Uh, so I often talk about if you want to just the very, very simple parts of it, the sort of consumer end. Uh, why, you know, why can't you, you know, why can't a doctor get reimbursed for talking to you via email or via a telephone or via video hookup uh, in the way that just about every other industry in America does these days. Uh, why we talked, I think we talked last time about medical tourism hospitals outside of the U.S. that can do superb work for quite low cost. Why can't you spend your money there? But the other thing, too, is that uh, uh, when you get deeper into into the Medicare reimbursement system, you find that it's uh, it is essentially the way it determines the price, uh, how much a particular service is compensated is, how much did the guys who are doing it now essentially spend through across their careers to get where they are today, and then sort of split that up and share it among the patients. It's, um, it's as if in the information technology world, if we had said, okay, 
You know, if you if you need to do some calculations on a computer, we're going to figure how much money did IBM spend over the 20th century, and we're going to compensate them that way. It was it's related to the cost of inputs, not the value of the output. Right. That that ultimately is going to have to change, and and there's some. Uh, I can envision a time when there's some when when changing some of those things become very popular. Uh, you know, especially as computer-savvy generation realizes I don't really need to run into the doctor's office uh, every for every single thing I can deal remotely. And again, that's only one small piece, but it's one that you can imagine from other industries. Um, we, uh, we, we, have, we have to change the way we approve drugs and devices. Uh, Congress uh, did some pretty decent things last year in the 21st Century Cures Act to expedite a few things. My concern with that law was they will view that as, well, we already fixed that, so we need to do other things. Uh, mm-hmm. They tweaked it a bit, but it needs to go much farther because we need to uh, roll out drugs and devices. Uh, we are, we're in a remarkable age where an, an awful lot of what is currently done through expensive professional medical care will be able to be done by patients themselves. Um, uh, I talk to medical audiences all the time at medical schools and elsewhere, and there is only a dim awareness among among some of the best medical professionals uh, of just how far we are advancing in, in the capacity to, to use digital technologies to do uh, diagnostics, to, uh, uh, to compile records to to track drug interactions that sort of thing and we're not making the most of it right uh, and then and a lot of the other things are a lot of things are going to have to be done at the state level um True. changes in the way we do professional licensure scope of practice allowing people who aren't physicians like nurse practitioners to do things they're perfectly capable of doing at lower cost uh changing we stop restricting the the way we structure medical businesses uh, because somebody in 1920 thought it was a good idea to do it that way. Uh, so a certificate of need that that st- many states still prevent active competition among hospitals. Uh, we do everything we can to bar uh, the construction of specialty hospitals that uh, can be particularly good and economical at doing it doing what they do because they specialize. Instead, we focus everything on general hospitals Mm -hmm. um, because they are, uh, I don't know, they're politically powerful and they make a good argument for themselves. But lots of of these things are going to to have to change, and there's plenty you can do as long as you get away from uh, the sort of, if you yank the string on, on conservatives, typically they'll say, well, Let's buy and sell health insurance across state lines and have small business health plans and um, doodle around with the malpractice system and have high-risk pools. And they're sort of the same old ideas, and they've gotten them, haven't gotten them very far. And I think the case for those usual conservative ideas is far weaker than they usually think it is. And I think Friday, in, in, in part, uh, really reflects that these aren't, very convincing arguments, even though you hear them a lot. So we we kind of need to break out of the 
old mindset and start looking at what are some other things uh, that may be a bit less political. And I probably said it last time we talked, this is where the remarkable changes came in the information technology industry 25 years ago when Mm -hmm. both parties sort of came out of a slumber and allowed markets to function uh, to a remarkable degree in, in IT and change the world in the process. Yeah, it seems uh, – I, I agree with you there. It seems like politicians are not uh, – they're letting politics get in the way of good public policy and that it seems like they're just not thinking outside the box. And maybe they're not including enough experts, you know, healthcare experts and doctors and nurses into um, their legislative process. But um, let's jump one step ahead here because the crux of this whole conversation that we're having is, all right, well – Now, where do we go from here, and what should be included in any new legislation? I mean, Republicans are going to start over. You know the Democrats are not going to play ball. That's on on the political spectrum. So conservatives have an opportunity here, though, to pass something or to put forth and maybe include Democrats. I I would say do something uh, less politically charged and try to include them. Whether or not they they will even talk to them or not is is up for – we'll find out about that. But – um, what should be included in any new legislation as we start over here? I mean, it looks like they're going to start with taxes first and then go back to health care. But what needs to be uh, – what do you recommend they start with and what do you recommend that uh, needs to be included in any new piece of health care legislation? Yeah, well, I think part of the, part of the problem is that uh, the notion that they had to have, quote, a plan, unquote – a plan is what got us into trouble in the first place. It was the notion that somehow we've got to sit down and and in one fell swoop pass one big giant thick law that solves all problems in healthcare. That's what the ACA right. uh, tried very hard to do, and what these guys were trying to do was was their own version of that, which is one one huge thing, and we'll just fix this and move on because we really don't like to talk about this. My my best guess is, over a period of years, we will have many pieces of legislation uh, that are that, that uh, rather than a a giant uh, you know, comprehensive piece of legislation, uh, we're going to have to have a number of smaller but very important fixes uh, that will allow and, and key key in my thinking is things that allow. Uh, Allow people to innovate in the in the sphere of uh, different kinds of treatments, of uh, development of drugs, development of devices. Uh, we need to sort of clear the way for that. And actually, I'll go back and something you said a minute ago, and I will actually add a caveat to it. Um, it's, yes, it's very. I have deep abiding respect for doctors and nurses. Uh, but quite frankly, they're not necessarily the best people for knowing how to do this. Uh, they they have their ways. They are um, medical edu- education is we're operating on a 107 year old model of medical medical education <clears throat> that plays a large role in keeping things from happening too quickly. Mm-hmm. Uh, it is. Doctors and nurses get very comfortable with the world that they've been handed. Uh, I've taught at a number of medical centers, and I I, I always do segments of the course where we try to 
envision what is going to be happening 10, 20, 30, 40 years from now in in the practice of medicine or allied healthcare. And I'm often told that mine is one of the very few courses where they're ever asked to do that. What they are generally taught to do is study the state of the art, what's out there today, and learn it well. And thank goodness they do learn it well. Um, but the system is not designed uh, for them to be you know, to be playing the role of futurists and imagining where it can go. It's right. and, and again, I keep going back to IT. Um, if you ask you know, the people at Honeywell and IBM and whatever in the 1960s or 70s where computing was going to be, they probably would have given you, for the most part, a picture of well, we'll have even bigger mainframes. They'll cost a lot more, but but uh, you know they'll they'll be able to handle uh, 128 kilobytes uh, instead of 64. And um, and what it what it took was a world where outsiders, you know, daring people with uh, uh, with with really different ideas, could come in and imagine uh, how the world might be different. There's a there's a quote that's attributed to Tim Cook, the current uh, chairman of Apple, uh, who said something along the lines of his job is to um, uh, to produce things that you never even imagined. That as soon as they're out there, uh, you can't imagine how you ever lived without it. Right, and he's done a good job of that. <laughs> yep, 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 and uh, uh, and that's something that we. We really obstruct in many, many ways in in healthcare. Uh, I'm not, you know, you know, will it? Well, I don't know. I'm, you know, the question. So, will it ever uh, grow and become uh, as as productive uh, as as IT did? I don't know, but it, it certainly could because actually, an awful lot of the future of medicine is going to be driven by information technology. Uh, I don't remember whether we talked about it last time we may have I've, I've had a lot of these talks in the last couple of weeks hmm. um, but uh, there was a case in Japan with a woman with uh, uh, an undiagnosed doctor struggled for six months to diagnose what was wrong with her they knew it was some sort of leukemia but they couldn't get a handle right. on it so they plugged it into IBM's Watson which read 20 million papers in 10 minutes and came out with the correct diagnosis yeah that's an awful lot of the way that medicine is going to go. As long as we're trying to do 20th century medicine and just sort of argue about who pays for 20th century doc and 20th century nurse, we're not going to really get out of it. And once you do get into uh, into these newer realms, you can actually get some great interest. I, I, you know, I fairly often I end up on Capitol Hill talking to. Uh, members of Congress and their staffs from, you know, way out on the left wing, and they get very, very interested in this stuff. It's uh, uh, it's not having the usual Obamacare argument. And uh, I'm not, you know, yes, in the next week, I don't expect an, a nice bipartisan consensus to develop. Yeah. But uh, in the longer run, uh, I think ultimately we will have to. And it's it's been closer in the past than we might remember. When I came to Washington 10 years ago, uh, the hot health care bill on Capitol Hill at that time was one that it certainly wouldn't have been 
to my liking, though it had some interesting features to it. But it was a completely bipartisan bill that a lot of people in 2007 thought was going to pass and would have been the big health care reform in the U.S., among right. other things. It would have gotten rid of, uh, to a large extent, employer-sponsored health insurance and moved us to more of a, a completely individual market with portable insurance. Again, there were many things about the law I didn't like, uh, but that nevertheless, it was a solidly bipartisan effort, and that sort of stuff's not impossible. It's just uh, a lot of bridges were burned in the last decade, and it will take quite a bit to reconstruct them. Yeah, it seems like there needs to be a better debate on on issues that are not uh, traditional for sure. So um, just before I let you go here, um, moving forth, and you said that it's got to be done in multiple pieces of legislation. Do you recommend then for Republicans to, and you know, if you could get both sides together, repeal some of the things that have increased premiums on people that we've seen, um, you know, insurers dropping out. We've seen the rising premiums and deductibles across the country. Do you recommend repealing uh, things here and there and instituting maybe new elements uh, favoring technology, favoring innovation? and maybe just doing it bits bits and pieces over the next few years? Oh, that's legislative strategy. And I don't know, fortunately, I've never worked on, on the Hill, and I'm kind of glad I have it. It's, mm-hmm. uh, it's, uh, uh, it's a different existence. Than, than but but from like. a policy standpoint, though, would you but, be able to repeal part, the parts of Obamacare that have really skyrocketed our premiums and deductibles – you know, take out the individual mandate, um, some of the uh, some of the uh, other elements that we've discussed that the Freedom Caucus was in favor of. Repeal some of those some of those things, not everything, some things, and in instituting um, technology provisions in there and allowing for um, for innovation, for uh, competition between hospitals. Yeah, the problem. Yeah, problem is for some of those things like yanking out the individual mandate, and I'm certainly not a fan of the individual mandate. But uh, you yank it out and leave the other stuff intact, like community rating, um, you're inviting death spiral. Mm. Uh, so it's the problem is, uh, you know, give give a tip of the hat to the guys who wrote the ACA. It was kind of a Jenga tower of you know, all these interlocking pieces, and you can't just yank the one on the bottom out because you don't like that one. Uh, it's it is very difficult to take it apart piece by piece. Um, we, I think that was one of the lessons of the other day. Uh, it is, you know, that it, it may feel kind of good as a, um, as a political thing initially, but uh, from a policy standpoint, you can be inviting it become even worse than it was when you started. Okay. So how would you then go about bits and pieces? Uh, I know because you said, you know, think that a comprehensive plan, a comprehensive plan is why we're in this mess in the first place. So there are elements that need to go together, but then how would you go about, um, and I don't mean on the legislative strategy, but in terms of policy, what would make good policy? How would you go about this so that it's not just one comprehensive plan? Uh, yeah, I mean, that's, <clears throat> you know, again, how you assemble it and actually get it through Congress, I'm going to have to leave to the people who do that very well. Um, but you know we're again we're going to need to have some sort of a fix or multiple fixes on the way Medicare prices. 
you're going to need to deal with, uh, you know, with a hospital lobby and, and, and the way we've structured the regulations in that, how we deal with uh, at the state levels with malpractice. I mean, again, it's, you know, I, I've, I have compared it in the past to uh, what the U.S. did in the Pacific in World War II, which was an island hopping strategy. You look for opportunities, uh, multiple opportunities simultaneously. You go at them. When you accomplish one of them, then you move on and look for another island to go to. Right. And that's easy easy for me to say, but um, but I'm afraid that's it, it, it will be a long, hard slog, and it isn't going to be fixed in one piece of legislation. I am confident of that. All right. Well, Dr. Robert Grayboy is Senior Research Fellow at the Mercatus Center at George Mason University. Thanks so much for taking time to chat and, uh, and be well, all right? Okay. Thanks, Neil. Take care. All right. Dr. Robert Grayboy is the Mercatus Center at George Mason University. Always a pleasure to have him on. We're starting over. It's a, a new journey in terms of health care. All right. When we come back, we are doing another segment on the Neil A. Cursor Show podcast today. And when we come back, some egregious examples of uh, media bias. We're going to talk about that. Um, why do they and how do they make conservatives and Donald Trump look bad? Uh, we're going to just go over some examples and reiterate some stories that haven't been covered. Omission is just as bad as out, outright lying. Uh, so we'll get into that. Plus, uh, Liberal protests erupting at Trump rallies, the hate from that side of the aisle, um, and this whole United Airlines, are they sexist and the misogynist, that whole debate? Eh, we'll, we'll get into it because it's interesting. Also, Chelsea Clinton, her really funny tweets, that's how we'll, we'll end the show. We'll end on a, on a funny note. All right, we're doing our part to make America great again. Make sure you subscribe to the Neil A. Crystal Show podcast. On iTunes and neilacruiser.com, and we will be back just a short bit, and we'll keep you informed of everything you need to know. Stay tuned. He's got the knack for it the knack for America. Indoor baseball, anyone? Most party fouls are pretty dumb, but if you decide to drink and drive underage, you could lose your license and your freedom. Learn more at ultimatepartyfoul.org. Brought to you by the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration and the Ad Council. When it comes to saving money, don't act like a baby. Goo goo gaga. Be the boss and make a budget. I'm the boss, baby. You're the boss of me. I am the boss of you. Or not. M2. Or not. M2. Need a little help? Aren't you going to do any work? I'm very busy delegating. Create a personalized savings plan. We can share. You obviously didn't go to business school. And get other tools and tips at feedthepig.org. Brought to you by the American Institute of CPAs and the Ad Council. Did you just look down at your phone? You did it again, didn't you? You know, you're flying down the road in a three-ton hunk of steel. And a text takes your eyes off the road for an average of five seconds. At 55 miles per hour, that's long enough to travel the length of a football field and cause some serious damage. Turn it off. Trust me. Whatever it is, you'll live. Learn more at StopTextStopRex.org. Brought to you by the Ad Council and the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration. Straightforward talk. 
drives the political establishment crazy. If you like your doctor, you will be able to keep your doctor, period. What, like with a cloth or something? I don't know how it works digitally at all. <laughs> Neelay Caruso is on the air and telling it the way it is as you deserve. It's the Neelay Caruso Show Podcast. All right, we are back on this Monday. We start a very, very busy week. And the fight continues because if you are on the right, if you really, truly want to make America great again and institute policies that are going to help the American people, well, you have an uphill battle. And it's not just the political establishment. Uh, It is also the mainstream media. Um, And, you know, it's easy to attack them. And I don't do it often because, you know, frankly, um, I could be considered to, to be in that realm. Um, but, um, there have been some egregious examples, um, whether it be outright the way they construct stories, which is what I'm going to get to in a moment, uh, of an example that I posted on my Facebook page yesterday on Sunday afternoon. Um, and that's one example of the, how they edit. And, and another example is, um, omission. We'll get into it. So. I posted this on my Facebook page, and if you're not following me, it's facebook.com uh, slash Neil A. Caruso. It's my official Facebook page, and everything is at Neil A. Caruso. Instagram, Twitter, everything. Just spell my last name right. It's C-A-R-O-U-S-S-O. Um, all right, so I wrote this because I saw a 10-minute story that CBS Sunday Morning did. And it was and included an interview with Sean Hannity, who said that he was in there for 45 minutes, and they included maybe a minute, and they cut him off, and it was really egregious. They constructed this story and edited. Ted Koppel was the journalist, um, edited the story to make conservatives and our president Donald J. Trump look bad. How did they do it? Well, they. Asked Sean Hannity a question, and he and and he said, "Listen, um, you know what? Uh, my role as an opinion commentator to do is to is um, to reveal um, things that I believe are not talked about in the mainstream media." Okay, and he talked about and he said on his radio show today that he talked about a lot of a lot of things that were not included in the interview. Now, the most egregious part here was when Ted Koppel told Sean Hannity that he and other conservative commentators are bad for the American people. He basically said that you shouldn't have an opinion. He basically spoke down to Sean Hannity and said you don't deserve to have an opinion. That only us journalists could have opinions. Listen, okay? I have a strong opinion. I have strong convictions. My duty, though, is to you. The American people. My duty is not to impress my colleagues. My duty is not for accolades, which I'll get anyway. Um, my duty is to show you all the news that's happening in the world. And that's why I go over. It's why I do these podcasts every day because the news every day is unbelievable what's going on in our communities. And unless you hear the uh, the real deal news, as I, as I say, and I put these articles on my site and I feel like it is my obligation to tell you everything that is going on. And listen, you don't have to agree with me. That's fine. 
I like respect. You don't have to agree with me. But wholesome debate is good. Cable news and social media can be used for good. And what Ted Koppel did in this piece was basically say that cable news commentators accept he only singled out Fox News. And if you looked at the piece, and it's on my Facebook page if you want to check it out, it's egregious. The way that he said, you're bad for America, and they did not let Hannity respond to that opinion. You see what they do? The hypocrisy. The Ted Koppel, who says, the journalist for CBS, okay, says that um, you're bad for America because you have an opinion and people believe what you say, and that he's very good at his job, Hannity is, um, and gets paid well for it. And so Ted Koppel says, you're bad for America because you tell people, you know, you have ideology and people believe you and you're not stating facts. First of all, he, he does state facts. And <laughs> if you listen to him, and I've cited the stats here, Bureau of Labor Statistics stats of, uh, you know, 95 million Americans at a labor force since Obama took office and uh, the lowest labor participation rate since uh, since the 1970s and 13 million or more Americans in food stamps, he cites statistics, okay? Those things as I worked at Fox as a um, college associate there, that they have a brain room, they source everything, things are not thrown on the air willy-nilly. Now, but he only attacks Fox News. He doesn't attack MSNBC, God forbid, or CNN. You know, they show little clips, but the focus was Fox, that they're bad for the American people, that they, because they're conservative and probably when the, or not, and listen, there's some great journalism that goes on there, especially during the daytime programming, but because the commentators in the evening are conservative, they're bad people. You know, we're just a bunch of baskets of deplorables. That's what they really believe, and they just talk down to us. And they, they say, oh, well, you're conservative, so you're a bad person. I had someone on Twitter today call me a bad person. Now, it doesn't bother me because I know the person, so I don't care. I just went after them on policy. They don't want to talk policy. They'd rather just call me a bad person. They'd rather just call me a racist and a sexist and misogynist and uh, homophobic. They just want to call me names. They don't want to talk policy. They don't, you know, we just did an interview with Dr. Robert Greenboys. They couldn't handle an interview like that. They couldn't handle a real substantive debate about health care policy. Because either they don't know or they don't care, and they have made up their mind that all conservatives are bad people. And they just want to talk down to middle America. It's this New York, Los Angeles, globalist-centric news media and elitists and celebrities and all those that get news attention who show utter disdain for hardworking conservative Americans who truly want to make America great again. That's what I wrote on my Facebook page. So, inciting this report on CBS Sunday morning, you could see the edits that are made. They don't allow Sean Hannity to respond to the allegation that he's bad for America. But you see the hypocrisy that he's saying, because you have an opinion you're bad for America, we need to stick to facts. But that's his opinion that he's bad for America. You see the hypocrisy that only... He's allowed to say it because he's a journalist, because he has a license to practice journalism. First of all, there are no licenses to practice journalism. And the problem is that they come out, they become activists. If you're a journalist, stick to the facts. You're not an activist. Okay? You don't represent a political campaign. You know, uh, 
if you want to do that, be a political commentator, sure, we have free speech. And see, they love the First Amendment. They love the First Amendment when it only fits them. But see, President Trump, because he calls them out when they're wrong and says, you're fake news, and says, that's not a, a true good reporting. You are fake news. Because President Trump exercises his First Amendment rights, he is wrong. He's bad because he calls them out. The president has First Amendment rights as well. And so do I and so do you. Um, now, one story that wasn't covered on the network news this past week at all was a Rockville, Maryland rape that I talked about. Zero network news coverage of it. Total blackout and all of those other Sanctuary City reports. Are they going to cover it now that Jeff Sessions says we're ending sanctuary cities? And by the way, Sessions better follow through. We'll keep him accountable because we need to end it. We need to put an end to the lawlessness of the past eight years. But those two illegal immigrants who crossed the southern border in 2016, we know all this from good reporting. Most of it done on online publications. The network news did not cover it, which means people did not know about it. That there are still people today who believe that the network news will tell them all they need to know in 30 minutes. And there are journalists, listen, I've heard it out of people's mouths, that they truly believe that it is their role to control the news. I had to answer a survey today about a journalism department. And I said that it is important for, for students to know that it is not their job to control the news. It is not their job to make someone look good or be an activist for a left-wing party. And it's their job to report the facts. It is not their job to make the president look bad. It is not their job or role to be an activist. It is their role to merely put all of the news out there and let the American people decide. And that's really where my obligation is, too. I've never been outside the country. My obligation is to the United States of America. I'm a proud American with strong convictions, as you know. I have my political stances. I've told you. I'm pro-Trump. I voted for him. I did. Supported him from day one. But I will keep him accountable. And if there are things that I do not like, like this health care bill I was not enamored with, and I'm glad that it was shot down, to be honest with you. I think it was better. But the media, you have these illegal immigrant crimes at zero coverage at all. I was very emotional about this rape last week. I was very upset. And there have been a few stories about alleged rapists, murderers, gang members, others that have been granted sanctuary by liberal policies. That has not been covered. And when, but what is covered is that they're deported. And then, oh my God, you know, a woman, she's got a family, she's being deported. Okay, but she also, you know, this is the Phoenix and Arizona case, but she did commit a crime. She committed identity theft. And she took someone's identity, an American citizen's identity, for her own and made someone. Now, this person will go through decades of their life with a poor credit score and with paperwork and with the struggles and tribulations of dealing with uh, a stolen identity. But we have to be inclusive, and we have to love everybody. Oh, give me a break. She committed a crime. She deserves to go. Let's be real. You come in here. 
You're supposed to abide by our laws. We're a country of laws. And if we don't have that, we have nothing. And we're, and we're anarchy. And today, let me give you an example. Today, the market was down, I think, 100 points or something like that. And what's the story? I'm getting alerts today saying the market in a, in a uh, turn against Trump, in a showing against Trump's health care fail. They put it on Trump. Okay, even though we discussed that this was the House bill and clearly Trump did all he could to negotiate and the blame should be on the establishment. But what did they do? That the market, it went down in tanks because of Trump and his policies. Um, okay, but uh, the market was going up and up since January, since really he was elected in November, has kept going up and hasn't gone down at all, reached 20,000. And they didn't give any credit to Trump for the market. So how could he not have credit for the market going up? And if you're not going to give him credit for that, how could he get the blame when the market goes down? So he only gets the blame and he doesn't get the credit. That does not make sense. Okay, He gets credit for the market going up because he's put – because of optimism and this is what investors are saying – that there's optimism over his pro-growth, pro-business policies that are putting Americans back to work. And you saw manufacturing jobs are up. Coal mining jobs are up in just two months of his presidency. And investors are optimistic that he can institute tax reform. Now, they got nervous when they saw that healthcare was failing and that was going to cut a lot of taxes. That's on the House. But if you want to blame Trump a little bit, yeah, he does get a little blame for it. Fine, I'll give you that. But he doesn't get all the blame. And if you're not going to give him credit for the market skyrocketing and continuing to go up, and the market you know is going to level off because that's just what it does, and it fluctuates, then you're just going to give him the blame. So that's bias right there. You know, I mean, just these little things that they do that they could shape a story. And I'm watching, you know, I watched the evening news last week. I was curious. I sat down and watched the first segment. And the coverage, the way that they shape it, they, the wording, that they favor Democrats and they make Trump look so outrageous. The, the clips that they use, the way that they describe him. Frankly, if I watched the evening news every night and, not, and nothing else, I would probably feel the same way. That President Trump is a lunatic based on how they describe him, how they report on him, how they give themselves credit for standing up to him when they're wrong, by the way, in a lot of cases. You are fake news. They're lazy, a lot of these reports. I know I, I see them every day. A lot of them are lazy. Not, not all of them, but some. In terms of digging stuff up and really looking to spend the time to put a well-constructed report with all the facts together. Because then it comes out, it's refuted, and then they have to change it. They don't. No one knows. No one sees the corrections. Everyone sees the original tweets. They don't see the corrections. And listen, I am honest where, with where I stand. Others say, "Well, I'm a journalist, and I only see the facts." But then they tweet, and they have this total sarcasm in their entire Twitter feed. So you know, it's it's a problem. It's a problem because they're. It, there needs to be, and I, I believe that, that social media, cable news is good. I believe that it gives people the opportunity to seek other opinions and to seek news that is elsewhere. 
I tell you, Fox News is great. Fox News is a great network. They do great journalism there. Shepard Smith, um, John Roberts, John Scott, uh, Shannon Bream, one of my favorites. Dana Perino is not a journalist, but one of my, uh, she was the press secretary for George W. Bush, one of my friends. She always puts things in good perspective. They have quality people there. All right. Now, listen, Greta Van Susteren, she's on MSNBC now. Great political commentator. Very smart. Very bright. Um, but then, you know, you could disagree with someone. You could maybe not agree with Sean Hannity's premise. But you have to believe, if you're going to believe in free speech and the First Amendment, that he has a right to speak his opinion for which people seek every night and every afternoon on his very successful radio program. And you just, you can't say he's bad for America, that opinion, that only us could tell you what to believe. It's the elitists. It's, you know, only because we're, we're journalists and, you know, only we can tell you what to believe from a stuffy New York City studio. And, you know, all you deplorables out there, you know, you're just wrong. You, you're, you, you've you elected the wrong person. And this is just outrageous. Let me stick my nose up to it. Wrong. All right. Um, meanwhile, uh, so check that on my Facebook page. But it's a problem, and there's many, many examples of it, whether it be omitted, whether it be the way things are worded, edited, constructed. You saw with the piece that um, – uh, what's your face? Um, uh, Katie Couric uh, edited and put in a very long pause to make gun activists, uh, you know, pro-Second Amendment people look bad. And she's being sued for it. Now, CBS's Scott Pelley uh, is winning praise for anti-Trump commentary. The CBS Evening News anchor um, is uh, winning this praise from his peers in the news industry for veering outside of straight news reading and instead offering commentary in the Trump administration, which is not his job on the evening news. Washington Post media columnist Margaret Sullivan wrote in an op-ed Sunday night that Pelley is, quote, abandoning careful neutrality in favor of pointed truth-telling, a.k.a. he is saying negative things about Trump and making allegations and bordering on the line between commentary and, and journalism, and described him as a, quote, far blunter than his competitors in NBC and ABC. Um the AP report, there's an AP report here that uh, cited commentary from Pelley, including one from March, in which he said Trump, March 3rd, Trump had, uh, quote, had another Twitter tantrum. Is that his job to say? You know, I was watching him one night, the night that Trump had a uh, a news conference in which he took question after question after question about Russian allegations, all that stuff. And uh, he took all of this. And then he goes with blister and bravado, you know, in his deep voice, blister, bravado, Trump with some loose facts. That was the report. That was the report. Is that his job to do? No, it is not. State the facts. What did Trump say? What are his policies? Let's talk policy in the evening news. Uh, in February, Pelley also referred to White House counselor Kellyanne Conway as, quote, fearless fabulist basically calling her a liar, a word objective publications tend to avoid because it suggests a person's intent to deceive. And then you have former CBS anchor Dan Rather and uh, total hypocrisy, because remember Dan Rather was fired by CBS when he launched a report 
that was constructed to boot uh, to boot uh, George W. Bush out of office in 2004 over allegations about his military past that turned out to be false, and he jumped the story, and he and producers were fired for the reporting. And this is what Dan Rather had to say. Nobody wants a broadcast that is shot through with partisanship, political or ideological propaganda. But that's not what Pelley is doing. Pelley is not saying that it's my opinion that the president has told a falsehood here. That's what the record shows. That's a different thing. And obviously, rather, it was a left-winger who wanted George W. Bush out of there. Listen, and if you saw the movie, uh, what movie was that? Uh, I'll probably think of that after, but it was a good movie. If you look it up. Oh, um, I'm at the tip of my tongue. Can rather movie. Um, I'm not even looking this up. I'm, I'm having that tip of my tongue. I should probably just look it up. Um, and that's that would help a lot of things. But it was a good movie because it was pretty um, – it told the truth of everything that happened in that case and how they constructed the story that was false, and they really wanted to bring George W. Bush down. Uh, truth was the name of the movie, uh, 2015, and I had to Google it. So uh, there you go. My memory was didn't serve me well there. Uh, all right, let's move off the media. Uh, Bill de Blasio is blaming Trump for hate crimes that are emerging across the country because everything is Trump's fault. He goes, because of the rhetoric, and Bill de Blasio is just one of the most dumb politicians in the United States. Okay? He's blaming Trump. Does Is he going to blame Trump because he can't wake up before 10 o'clock in the morning? Is he going to blame Trump because he dropped a groundhog? <laughs> Two years ago, this is not a joke. Look it up. He dropped a groundhog on Groundhog's Day. Is he going to blame Trump for how he divided New York City Hall and the NYPD? Is he blaming Trump for the rampant homeless epidemic that is sweeping New York City that if you walk the streets, every block there's a homeless person on the street? Is that Trump's fault when Trump wants to help these people and is Bill de Blasio's left-wing nutty policies that are putting more homeless on the streets, that are not, not taking care of people, that are leaving people out in the cold, that are leaving our police officers watching their backs at every turn? Now, what does he do? He's being investigated for voter fraud, for, um, not voter fraud, for pay for play. Unbelievable. But everything is Trump's fault. Oh, my God. You know, help, I've fallen and I can't get up. It's Trump syndrome. Give me a break. Everything is Trump's fault. I failed my test. It's got to be Trump's fault. I can't handle it. Oh, my God. Oh, jeez. <laughs> Uh, liberal protests erupt at pro-Trump rallies. So there were some pro-Trump rallies as President Trump um, supporters wanted to take to the streets in Ohio and California, Oregon, um, to praise the president and what they and uh, following this health care um, thing to show their support for the president. And, um, you know, they're met with protests. And uh, a liberal activist allegedly assaulted a female event organizer with pepper spray, reporting uh, the Los Angeles Times. Um, dozens of leftist protesters descended on the rally, many wearing patches that read, only you can resist racist liars before chased off, before being chased off by hundreds of Trump supporters. Now, I saw the videos, I don't want to play it because I don't want to give them credit. But here's the difference between Trump supporters and these liberal protesters. First of all, every time there's a protest, whether it be the Women's March or another liberal activist protest, they're, they spew a lot of hate. 
they don't include pro-lifers. They don't include women because they're pro-life or they're conservative. There's a lot of neg- negativity. They're wearing hats um, that um, I'm going to say pussycat hats. Instead of what they I, I, they wear hats that resemble uh, the female anatomy on their head. They walk around the city with them. I've seen them. Okay, around kids, they say the most nastiest things. They're cursing the filthiest mouths. The language, the incendiary remarks about our president, the blowing up the White House comments from Madonna, all around children, and um, and broadcast. That's very hateful, okay? And then the Trump rallies, they're loving, they're supportive, they're holding American flags. They just want unity in the country, and they're made, met with, with violent protests. So you see the difference? The hate is is not coming from President Trump, and it's not coming from his supporters. The hate is coming from the liberals who preach tolerance, yet they're not tolerant people. Check my Twitter feed. I had uh, somebody tonight who basically called me a bad person um, and attacked me on Twitter, and I just kind of went back after him. But, you know, like I said, he can't stick to facts. Um, and he, what, what is he right? Um, he, oh, he called, <laughs> I can sue him for slander if I want to. He called me a Russia, a Russia supporter and said, um, basically said uh, that I'm not an American, that I'm a Russian. What? So now he's basically asking for my birth certificate. <laughs> it's unbelievable. You just can't, you cannot make this stuff up. He called me a Russian. Do I have to now denounce that? I've never been to Russia. The hell do I know about Russia? I know how uh, dangerous they are and uh, the Soviet Union and the history. And I also know that uh, it would be nice for President Trump to have a working relationship with all countries. And we have many threats. Russia, North Korea, China, Iran, radical Islamic terrorism. But they can't name a policy. They can't talk health care. They can't talk sanctuary cities. I mention it. It goes in one ear out the other, and I'm just called a buffoon. That's how these liberals operate, apparently. Um, all right. I teased this so again to it, even though we're kind of going long here, but I feel like it was necessary because I haven't been here since uh, Thursday, and it's, uh, it's a very, very busy news day. This United Airlines thing, in case you heard about it, uh, there were a couple of people who were um, refrained from going on the flight, uh, United Airlines, because they were given a free pass as friends of employees, um, and they're supposed to represent United. And they were wearing leggings and were told, you cannot wear leggings on the plane. That is their policy. And they say, listen, if you're given a free ticket from United, you need to dress appropriate. So now you have all these feminists, and I'm hearing all this crap today about uh, their being sexist, and how could you tell women how to dress, and uh, they're misogynists because of this. You know, they, uh, and I'm listening to the argument, and basically, I guess they just want to be able to walk around naked. I guess that is what they want, that they think that they should be able to go onto a flight naked and no one say anything to them. I guess that's what they want. Now, and then they go, you know, men don't have that problem. Okay. Um, you know, if men wear shorts and were given a free ticket by United Airlines and they told you you cannot wear shorts, you cannot wear shorts. That is their rule. That is their policy. And you're given a free ticket, so shut up. 
seriously. And being the United Airlines is sexist and misogynist? Really? Seriously? Just, I mean, if that's your policy, and why wouldn't you want to look nice, honestly? Dress up. Look classy. Be a, be, be a real woman. You know? Dress up. Um, now, I'm going to be called misogynist for this. I, I don't care. Call me whatever. I've been called every name in the book. But frankly, um, you're going to free ticket by the policy. Um, you know, uh, you're representing their company. If you were to go to a uh, business meeting, would you wear leggings or wear shorts to a business meeting? Or you were called into lunch with a partner at your law firm? Would you just wear anything you want? No, of course not. You would dress up. So enough with the self-righteous bullcrap. Um, United can do whatever they want, and other companies who can run their business however they want. And United, okay, is allowed when it represents their company and they're giving out free tickets to do that. If you were just a regular passenger, wear whatever you want, fine. Okay? But if you're representing their company, um, there's nothing wrong with, with that. There really isn't. And, you know, the, the sexist charge, misogyny charge, I mean, give me a break. They just like to call foul on everything. Meanwhile, like, are you really just want to walk around with, like, no clothes on? Seriously? And wear your leggings on your own terms. Not on United's. Um, all right. So we wrap things up on this Monday. Uh, one last thing, because I thought it was funny. Chelsea Clinton on Twitter, she sees this tweet um, from... Uh, who is it from? From a TV reporter, Andrew Lofholm, uh, tweeted out a photo of uh, the cover of the 2017 Lincoln Day Dinner Program for the Republican Party of Palm Beach County, and it features Abraham Lincoln wearing a Make America Great Again hat. And Chelsea Clinton responds to it. This is how smart Chelsea is. She tweets this. Please tell me this is Photoshop. Please. Chelsea, don't worry. It's Photoshop. President Lincoln did not own... A Make America Great Again hat. Relax. He abolished slavery, but he wasn't wearing a Make America Great Again hat. So you can relax. Don't worry. Don't don't get all caught up. Don't get your uh, leggings caught up in a bunch. <laughs> the picture's funny, though. Abraham Lincoln with the, the Make America Great Again hat. Of course it was photoshopped. Give me a break. Okay, so. I feel like I'm out of breath. Uh... It is Monday, only Monday. We will be here every day this week. Don't you worry, I am here for you. Um, we will get into more policy tomorrow. We have a lot planned this week, in fact. Uh, we'll talk more about uh, Sanctuary Cities, I'm sure. We're going to get into this surveillance because I have a big story going to be up on EliCruzan.com this week. Connecting the dots of surveillance. Trump is surveilled. We have the evidence. That'll be up on my website probably Tuesday. So check it out, neilacruz.com. Sign up for my newsletter. Uh, we'll talk to you on tomorrow's podcast. Big Elite. Make America great again, folks. The Neil A. Crusoe Show podcast is a production of Crusoe Enterprises. Engaging, informing, and entertaining. Passion-driven, factual content that makes a difference following Neil A. Crusoe on social media. And log on to neilacruz.com to sign up for Crusoe's comments, newsletters, and be the first to know.